This is the Spur Leadership Podcast, number 19. How does an MBA with a marketing degree end up a senior leader in a global engineering firm managing a $3 billion merger and integration? If you're Alan Dick, you start by focusing on people. Focusing on the measurable transformation of people and profits, Alan has forged a decades-long career doing exactly that. Again, thanks to Zoom, Spur Leadership Executive Director Mike Ward and I were able to connect with him and discuss not only the lessons learned throughout his career, but also how to apply them regardless of industry or background. This is That Conversation. Well, Alan, we want to thank you so, so much for making the time to uh, sit down and visit with us. It seems like as we record this during the coronavirus lockdown, that time is one of those things that everybody seems to have a little bit more of than usual. If you would just kind of bring us up to speed a little bit and, and give everybody a little bit of background about your career and kind of how you have arrived where you are right now. Sure. Great. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me. It's great to connect with you and Mike this morning. Um, if I go back and, and think right from the start, it's important to know that I, uh, I grew up in, in Canada, born in downtown Toronto, and um, became a U.S. citizen back in 2007. So I maintained a dual citizenship and uh, loved living in the U.S. One of my proudest days was becoming a U.S. citizen. Uh, I loved every moment of it. And so uh, we love it here in the U.S. We currently live in Dallas. And um, I'm one of those folks that when I entered high school, I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to work in sales and I never struggled with uh, where should I go to school? What do I want to do? It was all about, I wanted to get a job and work in sales. And so I did that. I was very fortunate when I came out of college, the first job I ever got was working for a company that was owned by the government of France. And so, whereas my colleagues got sales territories in and around the greater metropolitan Toronto area, I was traveling to France four times a year right out of school. And so I worked for that company called Pechenet for 10 years, and, uh, and I had a great opportunity during that time to have expanding roles. And uh, I was also very fortunate to work directly for uh, what I'll call a young phenom who uh, built his career, and I sort of followed up behind him, and, and his name was Steve, and he got promoted to the United States uh, back when I was in my late 20s, and he handed the mantle to me. So my first ever P&L responsibility I had was running a, uh, a 60 or so million dollar company when I was uh, when I was 27 or 28 years of age. And so um, and so throughout my career, I've had uh, really good opportunities to, to do different things and see different things. Uh, I was really enjoying my time at Pechenet and I had a call from our largest customer one day asking if he could see me. It was the president of the company and I said, sure. And I went into his office the following week and he rolled out to me his five year strategic plan. And, uh, and I responded when he was done by saying, look, you're an extremely important customer of ours. And I can assure you, Henry, that whatever it is you need to make this a success, um, we're, you can count on our support. And he said, well, that's great. I was hoping you would say that, but that's really not why I told you that. I wondered if you'd be interested in coming and making it happen. And so uh, I like to consider and fancy myself as quasi-intuitive. I got to tell you, I never saw it coming. The whole three hours we were together didn't know that that's where it was leading. And so uh, five weeks later, I was working with Henry. 
we, uh, after about a year, uh, Henry asked me if I would move out to Vancouver and run our Pacific region. He wanted me to get some operating experience to go along with my uh, current role at the time, which was heading up our corporate marketing and our corporate procurement. And so um, wanting to succession plan, which is always a wise thing for a leader to do, he felt that having some operational experience would round out my capabilities. And so um, from the day that he asked us to consider it to the day that we were sitting in Vancouver was five weeks, oddly enough. And so uh, one of the beauties of, uh, of Sherry and I, Sherry being my wife now of almost 33 years, is there's really only the two of us to make a decision. And if we agree, then we agree and onwards we go. So we were out in Vancouver for a couple of years and we got bought out by a competitor. And I was offered a couple of roles, one there in Vancouver, one back in Toronto. And neither of them held a great deal of appeal to me. And so I exited the company at that time and ended up taking a job with the company in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, that was a, a really a great experience. So that was my entree into the United States back in, two, or I guess it was 1998, we moved to the US and lived in Louisville for a number of years. And while I was living there, our company merged with a Dallas-based company and we formed a new company called Alaris. And as we moved into this new phase, we established a head office in Cleveland, Ohio. I moved off to Cleveland and, um, and I ultimately ended up with the role of overseeing our procurement. And uh, from the time that we formed Alaris until the time that we were all finished, we did about eight or nine acquisitions in a very quick period of time. And so not only did we expand organically, but we also expanded through acquisition. And uh, ultimately, we became a global company. We did an, a sizable acquisition, effectively the same size as our existing company uh, with a company that was headquartered in Germany. And that was really our first foray into the international market. And so I, I became uh, the person responsible for all of the procurement over that. I had a number of subsequent, subsequent roles uh, there. And um, I, uh, I went from the procurement into a very short stint in manufacturing, and then I got my first ever senior leadership role at a, what I'll call a large firm as president of our role products division. Uh, did that for a number of years, and then we, uh, our CEO took the business and basically split it into two, a global role products, a global recycling. I was made the CEO of the global recycling. And, uh, and that was great. I was doing that for about a year and, uh, and ended up having a discussion with an LA-based company, which was an 80-year-old, privately-owned, family-run recycling business, currently run by the third generation, had built up this business to the point where they had gone from clearly well beyond the mom and pop and sort of the entrepreneurial to the place where they built a big corporation, a big company. And, uh, and through the advice of one of their business advisors, they were sort of led to the conclusion that maybe it was time to include a leader that had um, some experience in running a billion dollar plus operation. And so, um, so we ended up talking together and at the beginning of 2013, Sherry and I packed up and moved out to Los Angeles to do that. Um, you know, Mac, in the, uh, in the, sort of thinking of it through the lens of, okay, we've moved around, we've traveled, we've been Toronto, Vancouver, Louisville. By the way, we had a little stop in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida, but that was more because that's where we wanted to live, not because where I was working. But uh, with all of those stops, we arrived in LA, we bought a house in Redondo Beach up on the hill. I woke up every day, pulled up the blinds. We saw Pacific Palisades, Malibu. We saw the ocean. 
We saw the sun go down into the ocean every night. I said, Sherry, mm. throw, away the, throw away the packing boxes. We're done moving. <laughs> um, well, that wasn't to be the case. I, uh, I did something I didn't think I would do, and I, and I refer to it as answering the call of the wild. Uh, Steve Demetrio, who was my boss and the CEO of Atlaris, was hired by an engineering company called Jacobs. And Steve became CEO of Jacobs in August of 2015. And shortly after doing that, he asked me, hey, would you be interested in working together again? Which I immediately said, no, absolutely not. Um, and five months later, I was working for Steve. And uh, we were based in Pasadena, but five months after that, we moved to, uh, to Dallas. We relocated our head office, as many companies are, into the, uh, the Dallas or the Texas region for, for many, many different reasons. So uh, rounding third here on my story, Matt, and then I'll take, uh, Mac, I'll take a breath. Uh, went to Jacobs and uh, my first role was to lead our first ever corporate strategy. So 70 years in the making, a, a 10 plus billion dollar company, but never had a formalized corporate strategy. And so that was my first job. And we did that and we rolled that out in December of 2016. And then I went on to have a, a series of other corporate oversights inside of Jacobs, uh, including running some of our centers of excellence for sales and project delivery, our health safety, security, um, our procurement group for a period of time. I oversaw our communications and marketing group for a period of time. And then in my last role, I was, um, I was overseeing our corporate real estate, which included about 350 offices around the globe as well as building what's called a global business service model. And what we were effectively doing was we were taking a lot of our corporate functional work, we were bringing it all together in one place and where we could automate it, we would apply automation and streamline processes where we couldn't utilize automation. We said, where do we find very high skilled people in parts of the world where labor is a cost advantage, not a cost attractor. And so we were building big capabilities in Krakow, Poland and in Mumbai, India. About this time last year, we sold one of our three business units to a, an Australian-based company. And when we did that, we shed 25,000 of our 80,000 80, employees and $4.5 billion of, of our $15 billion in sales. And in, uh, in conjunction with that, I ended up exiting Jacobs. So I, uh, I gave myself permission to take the summer off and goof around, and I was highly successful at doing that. We went up to our cottage north of the city. I had a lot of fun just relaxing, golfing, not uh, looking at my email all the time. Got back to Dallas, and I said, okay, what am I going to do now? And so I revved up my uh, executive recruiting network, my private equity network, my personal, my business network, and uh, started saying, okay, where am I going to go to work? And uh, it was while I was sitting in the lobby of, a, uh, of another Fortune 500 company who were looking to hire a senior person to develop, of, of all things, a global business service model, that I, uh, I looked around the building and as I saw the people coming in and going out and uh, badging in and out, and I saw the people sitting in meeting rooms figuring out all of life's problems, I had a wave of clarity came over me. And that wave said, I don't wanna do this anymore. Uh, and I didn't know that until that point in time. I can't even tell you I had a suspicion about it. But as I sat there, it came very clear to me, I don't want to do that. Because as, as you know, and you, you, know, you do it yourselves the way that you gents work and also others that you have interviewed, when you're working in some of these leadership positions, it can be very consuming and uh, there's a lot of stress and pressure that goes along with that oftentimes. 
And when you do it for a long period of time, sometimes you don't even realize um, sort of the, the effect that it's having on you until you stop doing it. And I was afforded the opportunity, I guess, last summer to take a break and take stock of what I wanted to do. And I just realized I don't want to spend, you know, the next 10 or 15 years doing that. So um, I transitioned to what do I want to do? And that takes us to where we are today. Uh, one of the things I've always loved to do is to mentor young folks. And uh, young folks is, by definition, anybody who is one year or more less than me. So that, that has changed over time. But uh, I really have gotten a great deal of pleasure in my career in bringing along some folks that who usually reported to me and helping them develop in their careers and to be successful. And so I started to think about how I could do that uh, in, a, in a more formalized way. And where I've landed, Mac, Mac and Mike, is I formed a, a company called Impactfully. And I'll talk about that in a minute after I give you a chance to say something. And basically, the intent of Impactfully is to work with high potential employees inside of organizations to help them navigate the way, their way in their career to get to the next level. By definition, I call a high potential employee somebody who is designated as such by their employer. They are usually performing at a very high level of excellence inside of their organizations, and they are deemed to be the future senior leaders of the company. So one of the litmus tests that I always look at is at some point they will take their boss's job and likely their boss's boss's job. Mm -hmm. These folks normally get executive training and mentorship more once they reach the executive level. And what I'm purporting to do with this group is to give them a level of training and experience on a 12-month journey that will allow them to get to their next promotional opportunity quicker and more readily or better equipped. And so that's where my focus is, is working on high potential employees inside of organizations. And, uh, and so that's where you find me today. I'm putting all of that together and that's taking all of my focus. Alan, as someone who speaks for, uh, speaks for a living, you just wove a narrative like I have never heard before in my life. That was amazing without pause and without notes. Now I know that you've lived it, but at the same time, it was still very, very impressive. So thank you so much. I want to go back to something you said at the very beginning, because I think it ties into what you just said about what you're doing now. You said early in your career, you connected with a mentor who he was on the way up in the company and ended up being a, a significant help to your career, but also to you personally. <laughs> when you connected with that guy, did you what was it that drew you? What was it that helped make that connection? Mm -hmm. Well, in this case, Mac, in, in the first instance that I spoke of, it was, it was easy. And then that, this individual is my direct boss. So okay. a gentleman by the name of Steve Catterine, who graduated seven years before from the same program I did, when he was looking to hire somebody, uh, he went back to the college and said, this is what I'm looking for. That's how we ended up meeting each other. But Steve was a unique guy. Now I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna go back in time and, and a little bit of a leave at the Beaver story. This was in the days before internet, in the days before smartphones. You know, we used to have smart people instead of smartphones, <laughs> and um, and you had to rely on other methodologies of connecting with people. And Steve, uh, whether or not I, I never asked him this question, whether or not he was the beneficiary of this type of approach or not, I do not know. But I can tell you, I was. 
Steve invested his time in me. Mm. And so when I would, for example, my first sales calls that I did when I would go out on the road, Steve would come with me and he allowed me to watch him and listen. And, uh, you know, I wasn't just a fly in the wall. He would bring me into the conversations, but he basically showed me how to do a sales call. But then when we got back, he would say to me, Alan, I want you to write a follow-up letter to the client and thank them for their time and reiterate to them what it was that we discussed and what we agreed to, whether it was what we agreed to do or they agreed to do. And, um, and then I would like you to send that letter to them. And every time I wrote a letter, uh, he would have me bring it into him and we would sit down together and we would go through the letter paragraph by paragraph, sentence by sentence. And he would help me rewrite it and reconstruct it. Um, and that was the first tangible sign of somebody sitting down in my career and basically teaching me and helping me. But it was an investment in time. I mean, this guy was running a business, but he said, I'm going to take some of my time every week to help this guy learn. Um, the other thing that Steve did was he just kept throwing things to me. And, uh, you know, when we, for example, our principals in France had a foil manufacturing mm -hmm. capability outside of Paris. And they wanted to develop a market inside of North America. And Steve said, look, Alan, these, these folks would like us to develop a foil market. Um, I would like you to take it on and see if there's a foil market here. And, you know, in, in terms of the numbers, maybe I've talked about a few minutes ago, it wasn't that big a deal in the scope of life. But 30 years or so ago, uh, we took virtually a nothing and built a five or six million dollar business out of it inside of the, the bigger picture. But this was Steve giving me chances and opportunities and walking with me along the way. And so uh, I was very fortunate to have uh, an individual that poured into me and taught me from their own experience at an early age. And I owe a great deal of gratitude to Steve. Did, how many other people was he responsible for or how many other people answered to him in that organization? Yeah, when, uh, when he was, I would say when he was running all of North America, we were probably somewhere around a three or $350 million organization. And um, I, boy, I'm, I'm going to take a stab. We were probably maybe 100 or so people. Uh, okay. At the time. And so he might have had, uh, you know, eight or nine direct reports uh, in, in that particular time period. I think the reason I ask you that question, Alan, is because I think it's so critical, particularly not only for the, for the executive who goes out and hires that Alan from his old alma mater, but for the Alan who comes into that environment, it's one thing for him to teach you. It's another thing for you to be teachable. Mm -hmm. And I think both of those things are so critical. And there's so many places that that can fall apart. There's so many places that that trust can, can falter or short circuit along the way. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, in those early days and years with him, were there ever points at which you thought, yeah, I'm probably not going to, this, this relationship is not going to last, or I'm going to just go do something else? Mm -hmm. uh, no, uh, I would say in the 10 years, honestly, he's the, uh, well, he's not the only boss I had, because Steve eventually left um, after I, after he went to the States and was there for a couple of years, he came back to Canada and um, went into a, a family business with his brother-in-law. So I got a new boss for the last couple of years when I was there, but for the eight years that I worked with Steve and then the two years under this other gentleman, it never crossed my mind to leave. I loved what I was doing. And I think why I loved what I was doing was I was given a lot of responsibility. I've always loved running businesses. Um, and you know, I always liked being responsible for the bottom line. 
Um, I'm one of those weirdos that loves to public speak. And so the only thing I like better than a big crowd is a bigger crowd. And so this gave me the forum to do all of these things that I loved. I was traveling around the globe and I just love my job. And maybe that's why when Henry called me that Monday and said, come in and talk to me about it and, and said, would you like to come make it happen? It, it came out from my blind spot. I didn't see it coming because it didn't even occur to me to go work anywhere else. And so that was my experience at my, uh, at my very first job. And, and I love Steve. Uh, the day he came and told me, it was a Friday afternoon. He flew up to, to Toronto and we had a lunch like he often did when he was in town. And we went out, we came back to my office and he told me that, uh, that he had handed in his notice and he was leaving. And I sat there and cried. Uh, in my office and I couldn't speak and you know he was a great guy he just said hey you know what we got all afternoon take your time and uh, it was very upsetting for me uh, when he yeah. left I, I really I really valued him so I, and I know we've got I think what 35 years of your career to to somewhat dig into here and also what you're doing moving forward but I'm interested when you said at 27 you get handed the keys to a, an operation of 60 million you know, X number of employees underneath it. And I believe there's a stat out there that says there's 1% of companies in North America that are above 50 million, right? So to, to say, you know, 60 million compared to the billion dollar enterprises that you went on to run doesn't seem that big of a number, but it's a significant size compared to most companies out there today. Mm -hmm. Get the keys at such a young age compared mm -hmm. to most. From yeah. a leadership perspective to take either what you just gathered and, and grew underneath Steve to now have to go do it yourself to direct reports uh, in a full operations up there. You know, what are some of those practices? What are some of those principles that you started to document and go, okay, here's what I need to start to do? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. Well, I, you know, I, remind, I remind you that, uh, and I remind myself sometimes, it, it's, uh, I, I won't mention the movie because people will think I accuse me of watching chick flicks, which could be true. But, uh, but there is a movie where somebody, uh, you know, is talking about their, uh, their spouse who has passed away. And uh, this is the president of the United States talking to a lady that he is dating. And uh, he, he points out the fact that it's a different dynamic for her because as they met, she's met the president. But when he met his other wife, he was a college student. And so she sort of grew with him along the way. And Mike, that's the same analogy that I think of here. When I took over this and he handed me the keys, um, I had already had my learner's permit. So now I had the keys and I owned the car, but up until that point in time, somebody had sat in the front seat beside me and they continually let me drive a little further and go onto the highway and then do things you know, a little bit more and more. So because I had had a series of progressive uh, broadenings of my scope and opportunities, when I got there, it wasn't really a big shock or anything like that. So, so I sort of grew into it as opposed to being uh, dumped into it. As far as the, the process goes, uh, I will just tell you that my belief all the way along, I, I always have loved people. I love people to this day. Um, if you drop me in a room with 50 people, I am as comfortable as if you drop me in a room at a family reunion. In fact, I might even like it better, um, but that's a whole different podcast. <laughs> I think when it, when it comes to that, I just always have loved people. And I've always been a big believer in treating people well. I just, I just genuinely like people. And uh, whether it's somebody cleaning the table in the restaurant or 
somebody else, uh, somebody getting onto an airplane that uh, that you're scanning your boarding pass. I've I've always just felt that um, that it's it's been uh, just an interaction that I enjoy. And so when it came to my work, uh, these were in many cases people that I had grown up with. You know, I came out of college at 22, and now here I am, 28, 29, 30. Most of these people saw me when I was just, uh, you know, barely shaven out of college. Uh, you bring up an interesting concept, and it's a principle that I, I help with many times with folks that are being mentored or, or sort of progressing in their career, is that whole dynamic of when you get promoted above your peers. And as you have been working alongside each other and, you know, your, your buddy's going out for lunch one day and you come in on Monday and now you're the boss, uh, how do you handle that? So I'll just think of, of that as one example. Uh, the way that I've handled that, because I think you were asking for, you know, I, I read that as an example, Mike, when you asked me that, um, is to recognize that in any dynamic there, there or any encounter or any engagement with people, there's a dynamic. So when I got promoted above somebody, especially in my later years where I was promoted to run a business over somebody else that might have wanted that same job and now ended up reporting to me as opposed to being a peer, um, the first thing I would do is sit down with them and recognize their disappointment and, and just say, you know what, uh, I, I'm going to assume you haven't said anything, but I'm going to assume that you have a level of disappointment here because I know that this is a job that you would have liked to do. And I want you to know I appreciate that. Um, secondly, I understand that these things, you don't just get over them, that it takes a little bit of time. And so I also understand that. And so let's have a discussion about this now and what's frustrating you and anything that might occur. Um, but two things are true. Number one is I do now have the job and so I have to lead and I have to manage. Um, the second thing is we shouldn't be talking about this three weeks from now. And so in my view, I'm going to suggest that why don't we take a couple of weeks and I'll understand that there might be a little bit of distance between us, that you might not be happy. Once we enter week three, we need to put that behind us and focus on what's ahead. So I can think of at least two times specifically where I've done that with somebody in my career. And so that's just one of those ways that I try to manage a transition into a, uh, into a promotional role over and above somebody that I had been a peer with a, a day before. Alan, let me ask you a quick follow-up to that. You said that you can think of two or three times in particular. Mm -hmm. Did it work every time? It did. Yeah, you know what? It, it did because I, I think anybody, you know, people just want to be understood. They want to yeah. be able to feel the mm -hmm. way that they feel. And, uh, and with both of the two very specific occasions, uh, I have great relationships with those people today. And you know what? They went on to do other things and bigger things, and, and it was a sidestep for a period of time. But uh, I think people always appreciate authenticity and they appreciate when you're just being honest with them. And, you know, it's, it's a, there's a little bit of pragmatism re related to it, which is, you know, let's acknowledge the elephant in the room. But at some point right. in time, the elephant doesn't live in the room. The elephant lives in a zoo. So we got to put it back there. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and it just tends to work out in my view. Mm, that's great. You said something just a second ago I want to pick up on. Um, oh, I know. I know. You said when you were describing your career that you've always been a people person, and that, that comes through. This is the first time you and I have ever interacted, and it's obvious. Mm -hmm. When you're mentoring people, because not everybody is a people person, not everybody is an extrovert. When you are mentoring somebody who, who has strong gifts and a strong personality and, and has exceeded expectations, how do you counsel them? How do you mentor them 
when that's not their bent, mm -hmm. but they're striving for a leadership role? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, one, of, one of the ways, and if I could just take a sidestep, and I, uh, I, I purposely am trying, not to, uh, trying to make sure that I'm not plugging anything here, but uh, let me give you a little bit of insight in how I plan on delivering uh, this service to an organization. It's going to be done through a series of, uh, of modules, of very specific topics that I would like to cover. That's going to be about 25 to 30 percent of an engagement with a group of employees. The other 70 to 75 percent is going to be on the one-on-one. -on -one. And this is the, the monthly or bi-weekly access to me walking alongside and, you know, this isn't let's have a call and I'll see you in two weeks. Or, you know, what were your goals? And I'm not trying to cast aspersions on the coaching profession or anything like that. This is my style. And, and it's really one that says, I want to put my arm around you. And as opposed to interacting with you occasionally and then hoping to hear one day that you reached your destination, I would like to walk you down the aisle and I would like to, you to, you know, figuratively take your hand off of my arm when you move into your next role that I've sort of helped you to get where. And then if there's a role for me to play beyond that, fantastic. And so that's sort of how I'm thinking of doing this. The way that I came up with the modules or the content that I'm, uh, I'm putting together right now, Mac, is really twofold. Number one is I just thought of my own experiences. What did I learn on my way to the C-suite that was really helpful and beneficial to me? And so that's been my first download of body of work that I want to talk about. The second one was I have a beta group that I have formed of high potential employees. And these are a disparate group of people, many of whom don't know each other from <clears> different <throat> organizations. And I said to them two things. Number one is, if your organization was to make this type of an engagement available to you, would you be interested? Um, and I am pleased to say that 100% said yes once they found out that the company was paying for it. Um, and the second thing I asked them was, what would you like to learn? What would you like to talk about? And I was actually surprised. Now, some of the things were very, you know, I expected business acumen. My company tells me I need to improve my business acumen. A, I don't even know what that means. And B, I don't know how to do it. And so we have things like business acumen. We have things like self-awareness um, and executive presence and things like that. But one of the, a couple of things that, uh, that come to mind when you mentioned that, that really struck me. One of them was uh, somebody said to me, uh, I don't know how to handle criticism. Um, I just haven't faced a lot of it. And now as I grow in my career, I'm finding that I get criticized more and I don't know what to do with it. Um, there was another one, and uh, I got to be careful here um, because uh, I come from a, a group of, uh, of 50,000 engineers at Jacobs. And so I've got to park all my traditional engineer jokes and, uh, and just say this. Not everybody is comfortable walking into that room. And so I've had a couple of individuals say, can you help me to figure out how I can walk into a room of people I don't know and enter into a conversation? Yeah. Because I find myself continually on the periphery and I sort of take, I, I stand a step back or a half step back and I watch it all go on. I just don't know how to enter into a conversation. Mm. And so one of the things that I'm putting together are some very practical and tangible ways in which you can engage and enter into a conversation. And so, so those are the types of things that I'm wanting to, to sort of convey and help people with. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things I found in life, Mac and Mike, is that everybody has one favorite topic that they love to talk about. Yeah, it doesn't matter what country I've gone to. 
what your culture is, what your age is, whether you're a baby boomer, Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, whatever you want to call it. There's one thing everybody wants to talk about. You know what that is? Themselves. And so when, when you generate or you create an ability to enter into an engagement with somebody and you ask them questions about themselves, you immediately have an ability to enter into conversations, et cetera. And so I went a little bit into the weeds there, but that's a, no, specific, good. a specific tangible way in which I could, uh, I could answer your question. I think you bring up something, and in, in for those listening, you know, you, you and I, Alan, have have quite a history together, so you've known me my whole life, and so I've watched your journey or have been part of this mentorship uh, unpaid, um, as you've mentioned many a times uh, along the way. But <laughs> And it will remain so. It, oh, thank you. And, um, you know, we're talking about the person that, that is more shy, the introvert, you know, still the high potential employee that wants to come up into the next stages, the extrovert, and I'm speaking for myself here because I know this was something that I needed to go through, knowing that I was very comfortable walking into the room, knowing that I was very um, excited to be on stage, whatever it may be, I felt very comfortable in that. What I realize is part of my characteristics of being very competitive, of you know wanting to get to that next stage, somewhat clashed with peers or, or the teams that I were running. And so even though you were comfortable in that stage, your ability to actually be unified and be trusted, use the word authentic as well, um, that was something that I needed to work through. Mm -hmm. And you, you know, I think you've talked about it a few times here, but I think it's an interesting one of how to, um, because I think for a lot of people, we have that competitive nature. For a lot of people, it's an I mentality. Um, and obviously I'm being over transparent here and saying that it was something that I struggled with within my career, but I remember some of those circumstances, some of that feedback, having to hear that that wasn't working well, um, that that was, you know, somewhat separating the relationship, the ability to succeed in projects and initiatives as a team, whatever it may be. Um, and so I just, you know, we could talk about a little bit of, of that serving others, right? Putting that other person first. Mm. Yeah, it sounds so simple by, by doing that, but living that out, I think, is somewhat of a challenge as you compete in this, you know, rat race in your career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Mike, what came to mind as you were talking about that was, um, was a couple of things. One is the, re- the realization that not everybody is like me. You know, I was shocked when I did my first behavioral assessment, Sherry and I were talking to a, a counselor and um, we did one of these colors assessments. And um, what I was shocked to find out was that not everybody looks at the world the same way that I do. I mean, who knew? And um, now I've, I've, I've since maintained if anybody could choose a color to be, it would be the one that I am because I mean, who wouldn't want to be that way? But, but in reality, people are very different. And so um, I think having that understanding that not everybody in the room thinks the way you do, behaves the way you do, is comfortable the same way that you are comfortable, uh, having an appreciation for that is number one. Number two is it takes a village uh, to raise a child. It takes all skills and abilities and personalities to have a successful, high-achieving, high-performing team in a company. And just think about it for a sec, Mike. If we stack the deck with people that were all like us, nothing would get done other than bare knuckle brawls because we'd all be peacocking our feathers. We'd all be talking about why we should be the leader and the rest should sit back and listen to what I have to say. 
And the fact is we need everybody on a team in order to be successful. Gaining that, first of all, self-awareness of who I am and how I'm perceived, and then also the other's awareness of, of how other people like to behave and what motivates them, I think is critical inside of, a, of an organization and, and an interaction. And so you raise a really good point. You, you've got to have a self-awareness when it comes to things like that, because not everybody can be the same way or nothing will get done. Yeah. Alan, I want to go back to something, because one of the things that we have experienced and observed in almost every setting that we've had a spur leadership conference or a luncheon or anything, the, the one subject that is universally pursued has been work-life balance. Sure. And it doesn't matter, male, female, young, old, everybody is trying to figure that out. Yeah. And you mentioned a couple of times when you were kind of weaving the narrative of your story, your wife, Sherry. And how you all decided if we both agree, we go. If neither, if we don't, if we disagree, we're not going, et cetera, et cetera. Talk about how you and Sherry have managed to integrate work and life together over the course of your marriage. Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, so one of the uh, one of the modules, Matt uh, Mac, that I have put together. Uh, is called, Hey, Don't Forget About Me, The Life of a Significant Other. Mm. And uh, I will tell you, most of the lessons that I learned and where I got to today were by doing it the wrong way. Um, it was about, uh, I don't know, five or six years into our marriage. Uh, I was now, you know, I, I talked about my early career and traveling to Europe. And uh, I was a guy that was just on the go. And it was all about business and all about my career. And I would travel and then I would come home. And when I came home, I'd go out for work dinners and then, uh, you know, then I, you know, we had season tickets to the Toronto Maple Leafs, the company did. And, uh, you know, when they weren't being used by a client, Hey, I think I'll grab usually Mike. And for those that were wondering why Mike and I have a history, no, I did not used to be a parole officer. Yeah. I actually am his uncle. Um, so that's how we know each other. And so I would grab Mike or my other nephew, Ryan, we go down the hockey game. And, uh, it was one time, it was six or seven years into our marriage where I proverbially, proverbially came home one night and she said, I just want to let you know, this isn't working for me. Um, this is not what I expected. You know, when we got married, I was, I was anticipating that it was going to look like this and be like this, that we were going to live life together, et cetera. But uh, we're not, it's all about your work. And uh, she never raised a voice. She was never angry. The one thing I love about Sherry is that I've always liked Sherry and uh, mm -hmm. we have been great friends forever through a lot of trials, a lot of difficulties. We've stepped on a lot of landmines, but in amongst that all, we have always liked each other. She's the best person I know. Yeah. Far none. And so as she, ex as she explained that to me, um, she just did it in a way that saying, hey, I'm just letting you know. And I changed. Um, and that was great. And I'd love to wrap a bow around it and tell you that that's the end of the story and what a great guy I was. But I'll tell you what, when I got to Cleveland and I took over as president of our rolled products business and we had all these plants and uh, I think we were doing around two and a half billion in sales at the time. and We had 2,400 employees. Man, I got lost again. Yeah. Um, and I just, you know, it became all about that. And, and even when I was home, I wasn't home. You know, I gained the ability of looking in your eyes and nodding at the, uh, you know, the, the, what husbands can do sometimes. You nod on a regular interval, interval, which sort of suggests some form of listening and engagement. The fact <laughs> of the matter is you're problem solving. You're thinking about when I get done this conversation, I got to go send those emails. And that was me. 
and uh, and I truly got lost. And I and so a lot of what I learned was by doing it the wrong way. Um, some of the things you know eventually that we ended up with is uh, you know when I went back to work with Steve, uh, I had a discussion with him, and I said, "Look, Steve, if if coming back to work with you now at Jacobs is going to be like it was when we worked together at Alaris, I'm not interested." Uh, because it was 24-7, 365 days, we're always on, you know, always, always, always. And I said, I really don't want to do that anymore. He asked me a great question. He said, look, I understand that I'm, I'm a tough boss. And by the way, toughest boss I ever had, greatest boss I ever had. I mean, I'm telling you, you talk about learning. Um, but he said, you know, Alan, I, I get that. I get that I'm tough and I get that, that I'm demanding. But are you sure that it was always me that was demanding that of you and not you demanding that of yourself? And, uh, and my dear wife, who was sitting there with one of those grins on her face and, you know, had sort of that reaction. And, and I had to ask myself that because I'd gotten good at blaming it on the situation that I was in rather than my choices. Um, and so I think that's a great thing for all of us to think about is we have a lot more latitude than we like to let on. And uh, learning to say no is a, a really key thing that I think I can help convey to folks the, um, the other thing I think that's germane about that is where I could involve her in the decision-making relative mm -hmm. to my career, I started to do so. Let me give you a real easy example. I had to travel. You know, I went around the globe. And um, what normally happened was unless it was a specific event or a conference I wanted to attend or I was speaking at, et cetera, I had to go to Japan, okay, on business. I had to. I had clients there and suppliers there. Now, whether I go next week or whether I go the second week of May or the third week of May didn't matter. And so one of the techniques that we started to employ was I would say, hey, Sherry, sometime in the next four or five weeks, I got to go to Japan. Is there a week where it will be better for you for me to go? Rather than coming home and saying I'm going to Japan on the third of May, um, we sat down and she said, well, actually, my parents are coming that week. Why don't you go that week? And I'm like, yes. Um, in fact, I may leave a few days before they get here and stay a couple of days after. And if my father-in-law ever hears this, you know, he'll know I'm joking. But, uh, but those are the types of things we started to right. do. And, and where, you know, I've got to go out, I've got to take my team out for a dinner, that, uh, you know, in the next couple of weeks. Is there a night where it would be less inconvenient for me to do that? Those are the types of things that you can start to do. Learn to say no, because you don't always have to say yes. And include your spouse or significant other in some of the decision making on your schedule. And then all of a sudden they feel a part of it and they feel like you, well, they know that you're taking into account their feelings and their concerns as well. One of the things that we have experienced and I, and I've been through this as well, you know, is I don't think anyone who, who loves what they do and is really committed to it watches the clock. I don't, I don't think anybody works nine to five, 40 hours a week and they go home. I also am firmly convinced that nobody is healthy or working smart and well, who's doing it 85, 90 hours a week. Mm -hmm. So with the benefit of your experience and years in industry, where do you tell people this is kind of the sweet spot and, and it's going to vary from person to person and career to career, yeah. but where do you tell people to kind of, to kind of aim for as they're looking at how they do? Because I don't think it's work-life balance. I think it's integration. You're, mm -hmm. you're working as a part of your life and your life is a part of your work. When you tell people this is kind of the sweet spot to aim for, where do you where do you point them? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I, uh, I I love the way that you described it as well. You know, it, it's it's sort of a it's a cycle. It's 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 living life as opposed to work life balance. You know, I used to joke, and it, I thought it was funny, but not everybody did. Um, I say, look, I have great work life balance for this six years. I'm really working hard, and I'm spending all my time. And then the next six years, I'm going to ease off. So it all depends on what period of time you're looking at. When you know, and again. We can convince ourselves that we're achieving a balance if we spread the time span out wide enough. So, you know, the number one key is quit fooling yourself, all right? Like, be yeah. real with what you're doing. Uh, look, for me, I've done the, the 60, 70, 8 hours weeks uh, where you're always on, and it wasn't a matter of really looking at the clock, Mac, as much as it was just always being available. And so uh, for me, as I look to establish my new business, what I've done is I said I'm setting a threshold at 50 hours a week. Um, and, um, and that's sort of where I'm sitting here today thinking about, and, uh, I don't know if it'll be enough. Uh, I don't know if it'll be too little, but the other thing that, that you do, and one of the things that helped me way back when, when Sherry said, this is what I, what I signed up for, uh, it's amazing how laser focused I became at work because I just used to work to the time that I was comfortable with. When I knew that I had a deadline, it's amazing how I was able to a keep focus B, really work on the priorities. And uh, I, I was telling somebody the other day, it's like, no, I don't know how to deal with my boss. You know, everything's a priority. And I said, well, I, I got a suggestion. Go and tell them that if everything's a priority, nothing's a priority. Right. And so you start to focus and say, you know, it's sort of like if, if you knew you had the last four hours on earth and that, you know, you were, you were going on the glory four hours from now. And how did you want to spend the time? You'd have no problem figuring out the people you wanted to talk to, the things you wanted to do. Can I get in a quick skydive before I go? Because I've always wanted to do it. We have no problem nailing these things down. So putting some guardrails in place relative to your time and then focusing on what's important is the way you got to do it. And if you find you finish early on the things that are your priorities and you can do some more things, great. But quit giving yourself the opportunity of making 50-hour weeks, 70-hour weeks. Uh, because right. when you do, you'll just do a whole bunch of stuff. Usually, that doesn't really matter that much. Yeah, Alan, thank you so, so much for your time. It's great to meet you. And likewise, Mac. Thank you guys for having me. And uh, I wish you a great rest of the day. Thanks for checking out the Spur Leadership Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe. And while you're at it, leave us a review or a comment. You can reach us by email at podcast at spurleadership.com and you can also find us on twitter at spur leadership or on facebook at spur leadership i'm mac richard and this has been the spur leadership podcast